Amen. It's good to be reminded of Jesus. Um, there is a uh, story in the New Testament about some Greek men who came into Galilee, and they came up to um, some of his disciples, and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that really should be the cry of our heart each week. And we, we come to see Jesus in the songs. Uh, he is to be central in the reading of Scripture, in our fellowship, and in the preaching of his word. So let's continue to open our hearts to Christ this morning, to rest in all that he is, all that he has done for us, and devote our hearts and our worship to him. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Exodus chapter 20 once again. If you're visiting this morning, I want to welcome you, and if I haven't met you yet, introduce myself. My name's J.D., I serve as pastor here, and we've been going through the book of Exodus over the last seven, eight months, and we've come to Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. We've taken time to sort of look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, to look at what the law is in and of itself, what it's for and why we need it. And the last two weeks, we've been walking through um, individual commandments. Last week was the first commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And today brings us to the second. Our text today will be Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Heavenly Father, you've already ministered to us this morning, reminding us of Christ, his goodness, his kindness towards us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to minister to us now. Open our hearts to receive your word. Lord, I pray that you would purify our worship, that we would offer worship to you in the way that you desire, that our worship would be a pleasing sacrifice to you. So Lord, illuminate our thinking, help us to see things the way you see them, help us to understand your word. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a desire to apply it, give us an eagerness to obey, give us a sensitivity to the conviction of your Holy Spirit, and Lord, give us a hunger to know you more and a great desire to magnify your name. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the second commandment, this second of the ten words given by God at Mount Sinai, just like the first, has to do with worship. It has to do with worship. Worship, the worship of God, is of utmost importance. And the reason for that is because God is of utmost importance. His glory is of utmost importance. And so for Israel, this people that God has redeemed from slavery, for them to be in this covenant relationship with God, for them to truly be his people and, and him to be their God, that required that they get worship right. Worship matters. The first commandment to remind us of, of last week emphasizes the object of worship. We are to worship God alone. Worship that is true and biblical is to be exclusive worship. God is to be the only object of our fear, our trust, our devotion, our submission, and our faith. We find refuge in God. We see God as the highest authority. We look to him as our provider and our protector and our savior. He alone can satisfy. He alone is worthy of worship. God is the exclusive object of worship. We worship him alone. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment expands on this issue of worship, not by talking only about the object, but by regulating the manner in which we worship. To put it another way, the first commandment is about who we worship. The second is about how we worship. It's about how we worship. The point that the second commandment teaches is this. God must be worshipped rightly or he is not worshipped at all. God must be worshipped rightly or he is not worshipped at all. In this text, God reveals to us through his word two essential elements of right worship. Worship that is pleasing to him. 
worship that is genuine and true. The first is this. Number one, right worship involves a rejection of false methods. A rejection of false methods. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Israel was to worship God and to worship him exclusively and to worship him rightly. And this meant that they had to reject the prominent practice of their day. They had to reject the methodologies that all of their neighbors used in worship. Their worship was to be unique, to be different. They had to reject the use of idols in the worship of the one true God. Now, it's important that we understand this is not just a repetition of the first commandment. You might say, wait, I I thought God already told them not to worship any other gods. Wouldn't an idol fit that category? Really, this commandment is expanding on that idea of exclusive worship by telling his people, do not represent even me with any graven image. They were not to make a statue of Yahweh. They were not to bow down to any any artistic depiction of the one true God. This method of worshiping the one true God was wrong. There's a threefold description here we find in in verse 4. Forbidding the use of these images. Anything that is in heaven above. So that would be the expanse of the universe. The galaxy, the stars, the sun, the moon. All the way down to the clouds and the systems of weather that are in the more immediate heavens right above our heads. Or that is in the earth beneath any created creature, animals, plants, mountains, rivers, or anything that is in the water under the earth. For the peoples of this day, they, they didn't understand how deep the ocean went. They didn't have submarines that could see where the bottom was. It was a source of mystery and fear. And there's these creatures and currents that were uncontrollable. But God says, don't worship anything, any image that comes from any of those realms. They were not to make an image of anything in the created order and use that to represent God and somehow incorporate that into the worship of the God who had redeemed them. Now, at this point, some people will ask a question. So God is forbidding images in the use of worship, but what about the tabernacle? What about the temple? In fact, in just a few chapters, God is going to be giving instructions to these people to build the Ark of the Covenant, to build a special lampstand, to build a special altar, and all these different implements that go along with that. Is is that somehow a contradiction? No, God is not against art. God is not against beauty. God is not against anything like that. No, we have to understand that those implements for use in Israel's worship, none of them were meant to be an image of God. None of them were to be bowed down to in worship. No, that is reserved for God alone. Those implements in the tabernacle and later the temple were to be used in the service of God. So that's not a contradiction to these instruction. For us to understand why God needed to say this to them, we have to understand that the rejection of man-made images in worship would have been completely countercultural in that day. Idolatry was the norm The pagan nations of that day had countless innumerable idols. Now, they didn't actually believe that that carved image was a god. But they did believe that it represented a god. And they furthermore believed that that god's power and that god's presence was somehow connected to that idol. And therefore, they believed that any prayer or sacrifice given to that idol was then going to be received by the god. It was sort of the physical touch point between the God and the God's worshipers. And that was the norm. That's how everybody did worship in that day. So the idea of a God that you could not see, the idea of a God who has no physical representation, it would have been completely foreign to the children of Israel. And don't forget, they just came out of Egypt, Surrounded by temples, surrounded by pagan idolatry. This was a radical command for them to hear this word. Don't use any carved images. Don't make any images and bow down to them and worship them. This would have been shocking, completely counter-cultural. Why did God not want them to use images in worship? I think there's two reasons, and I think both of these are evident in the text. And the first is this. First of all, the nature of God's being. 
You cannot use an image to represent God. We cannot worship carved images because of who God is, his nature, his essence. Notice he says this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Verse 5, why? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That name, the Lord, reminds us of something God has already laid down. In the preamble to the Ten Commandments in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We cannot worship the Lord in part, through, through using these carved images because of his nature. The word Lord that's in all capital letters there is, is re- what's representing God's name, Yahweh. That name, that when God says, I am who I am. This is the personal name of God. And it says something to us about his essence. It says something to us about his nature. <clears throat> the bush that was on fire but not consumed. That's a picture lesson for us. That God is self-sustaining. That God is eternal. That God exists in and of himself. He is the Lord. That is his name and his being, his essence. That he is self-existent, self-sustaining. That he is eternal. That he is the transcendent God. And listen, what God is like determines how he must be worshipped. To put it simply, you can't contain the creator with a created thing. God is holy, meaning that he is unique. He is unlike anything in his creation. And so therefore, he must be worshipped differently than all the supposed gods of the pagans. It may be okay to worship Baal or Ashtaroth or Dagon or Ra by bowing down to some image that supposedly represents them and their power. But you can't worship the living God, Yahweh, the Lord, like that. In John 4, verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The Apostle Paul, in speaking to a group of people who were steeped in idol worship, said this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul continues in verse 29 We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We cannot worship God in this way because of the nature of his being, because of his essence. It just doesn't work. The use of man-made images to worship God is simply wrong. It is contrary to his nature. I really can't say it any better than Philip Ryken, who writes this. To carve him into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite. The invisible God visible. The omnipotent God Impotent, the all-present God, local, the living God, dead, and the spiritual God, material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. This would have been completely countercultural for the people of Israel. A shocking commandment that was different to what they probably expected. But it has everything to do with who God is. He is the Lord, Yahweh. And he cannot be worshipped in this way. Right worship of God is going to require the rejection of wrong methods. You can't worship the right God in the wrong way. They couldn't make any carved images and bow down to them because of the nature of God's being. It was simply a contradiction. But also because of the nature of his revelation. Consider this. The people had gathered there at Mount Sinai. And remember the, the visceral experience they had there as they, they heard the thunder and they heard the loud sound of the trumpet and they saw the mountain wrapped in smoke. They saw the flashes of light. They felt the ground shaking beneath their feet. But there's one thing they didn't see and that was God. They saw the effects of God invading the, the creation and showing up there at Mount Sinai, but they did not actually see God. Moses points this out in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as he's, as he's really preaching to the children of Israel, and especially this second generation. 
He says, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. They couldn't make a carved image of God, first of all, because of who he is, what he is in his essence, his being, but also because of how he revealed himself to them. God didn't show them his face. He spoke to them with his voice. It was the word of God that they received on that day. And this is intentional. And their worship needed to reflect this reality. They worshiped the unseen God. You know, we really like to see, don't we? We prefer sight to faith. But God is pleased by those who believe but have not seen. We, like the children of Israel, we see the effects of God's power. The heavens declare the glory of God. We see his fingerprints all over everything. But we have not seen God. We have experienced his love and his grace and his provision and his protection. We have seen, in a sense, in that way, but we have not seen God. We have seen God in the sense of we read of him in his word, but this kind of seeing is a seeing without eyes. It's receiving of how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so it is important that our worship reflects this. In our efforts to worship God, we must not try to supply something, to introduce something that God himself has not determined to give us, which is a sight of God with our eyes. God knew that Israel would be tempted to worship him in the wrong way. He knew they would be tempted to adopt the pagan practices of idolatry and then sort of stamp his name on it. So the second commandment warns them to do no such thing. The bottom line is this, we must worship God in the way that he desires. We must worship God in the way that he has designed. And that's going to mean that we have to reject wrong methods. We have to reject wrong methods. Right worship involves a rejection of wrong methods. But right worship, secondly, involves a realization of God's character. It involves a realization of God's character. Look back at verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? He gives the reason. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. What does it mean that God is jealous? Jealousy is one of those things that a lot of times when it's in our heart, it's a vice. It's a sinful thing. We use the word jealousy to describe wanting something that somebody else has that I wish I had. And it's only selfish. Um, and it's often used in a negative sense. What does it mean that God is jealous. We know that God is holy. God is perfect. God is without sin. And his jealousy is holy. His jealousy is actually good. It's not meaning that God is insecure. It's not meaning that God is petty. It's not meaning that God is paranoid. No, not at all. His jealousy reveals the strength of his desire for his glory. Charles Spurgeon writes, since he is the only God the creator of heaven and earth, he cannot endure that any creature of his own hands or a fiction of a creature's imagination should be thrust into his throne and be made to wear his crown. God's not okay with that. Isaiah writes that his glory he will not give to another. God is jealous for his glory and that is right it is right for him to do that. For God to not pursue his own glory, to not be jealous for his glory, would mean that God is not honoring what is honorable. It would mean that God is not valuing what is valuable. 
It means that God is not pursuing what must be pursued. It would mean that God is sinning if he did not pursue his own glory. So this jealousy is right. It's a zeal for his own glory. But this jealousy is also a feature, not a bug. It's a feature of his love for his own. It describes his refusal to tolerate a rival and his desire to protect this special relationship that he has with his people. Again, the jealousy of God is a good thing. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine if God didn't care if you worshiped false gods. If God was somewhat apathetic towards the fact that sometimes you turn towards other things that compete with him for glory. Imagine if God didn't care that people trust in something that cannot save. If people put their hope in something that cannot heal and cannot comfort. Imagine if God didn't care if you go after and trust in things and reach for things that cannot actually provide for you. Imagine if God didn't care if you sought satisfaction in wells that are dry and empty. What kind of love would that be? It would be like a husband who doesn't care if he sees his wife in the arms of another man. There is a right kind of jealousy that is actually the expression, not of selfishness, but of love. Love that treasures and prizes the relationship with the beloved. So much so that God will not tolerate competition. You see, God desires that Israel would be his people and that they would be that Israel be his people, that he would be their God. Remember, this is why God brought them out of Egypt, so that they would serve him, so that they would serve him. He says, listen, if you bow down and serve, if you bow down to and serve these idols, you're really sort of reversing the exodus. You're putting this thing all backwards. I brought you out so that you would love me, so that you would worship me, so that you would know me, so that you would have this relationship, this covenantal relationship with me. And God is jealous, therefore, for their worship, that they not worship anything else, that they not introduce corruption into this relationship of love that he has with his people. That's the kind of worship God desires. You might say, why would God be jealous if the people made images to represent him. I mean, these people are sincerely trying to worship God. Listen, if they use idols in their efforts to worship God, though they may be sincere, God cannot accept such false worship. Because graven images cannot rightly represent God, because an idol cannot contain God, because it cannot provide access to God, any worship offered to an idol or through an idol, from God's perspective, amounts to the worship of another God. It's the same thing as worshiping another God altogether. They had been redeemed to serve the living God, to know him, and that required keeping his commandments. He, he invites them into this relationship. In chapter 20, he says in verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what God's purpose was for his people. And it required that they worship him rightly that they worship him rightly. That meant they needed to reject false methods, but also that they needed to recognize something about God's character, that he loves them and that he's jealous for his glory. Sincerity in worship is not enough to make it acceptable to God. This is a hard thing for some of us to swallow. We look around and we see many people who from the world's perspective, are good people. And people who are genuinely sincere in their efforts to please God and honor him and worship him. And we sometimes are tempted to imagine that as long as someone is sincere, then God must be pleased. But listen, scripture sets the bar higher than simple sincerity. God must be worshiped in the right way because of who he is, because of what he is like. He is jealous and will not tolerate corrupted worship. Sincerity of worship is not enough to make it acceptable to God. It must be biblical. It must fit the pattern that God himself has established. 
I mentioned Jesus' words in John 4 earlier. We are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth. There is an element of truth that is required and essential for worship to be acceptable to God. Sincerity, although important, important and necessary to good worship, it's not enough by itself. The jealous love of God is demonstrated in two ways. We see this in verses 5 through 6. Look at what God says about his jealous love. It's not merely an emotion. It actually affects what God does. He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The jealous love of God is really demonstrated here in two ways. It's seen in his faithfulness to judge and in his faithfulness to bless. We see God's faithfulness to judge, that he will not tolerate false worship. It not only offends him, it actually incurs judgment. He says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. The word visit here has the idea of God showing up to fulfill his end of the covenant. That's what it means to visit the iniquity. He's saying, I'm coming and doing my part, holding up my end of the bargain. We see this word visit used elsewhere in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God's visitation in that context is the keeping of his promise, the keeping of his purpose to redeem his people and bring them into the land of Canaan. We see the word used the same way in Exodus 4, 31. When Moses and Aaron arrive and tell the people that God is going to lead them out of Egypt, it says the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God had visited his people, Israel, in Egypt, which meant judgment for the Egyptians and salvation for his elect. God's visitation is him showing up to accomplish his purposes and to do what he has promised, to keep his end of his covenant promises. So the warning here that God will visit the iniquity upon them, it's a warning that God will bring about judgment just as surely as he brought about salvation, if they decide to rebel against him and worship idols. Such covenant disloyalty, such disobedience to God actually amounts to hate. That's what it means when he talks about those who hate me. This hate is not just an emotion. It's not just a sentiment or an attitude. This hate is what is being demonstrated by rebellion against God directly disobeying his explicit commands. It's covenant disloyalty. Sadly, Israel did not keep this commandment, and they would experience the judgment of God. The consequences for their iniquity, for their bending and twisting of God's law, and for their transgression of his word, they experienced painful consequences. Not long after this, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people grow tired of waiting. They're demoralized by this this time of waiting. And they cry out to Aaron and they say, make us gods. You know the story. Aaron fashions fashions this golden calf. And the people bow down to it and worship. But you know what Aaron says? He says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron isn't introducing a new God and saying, let's worship a different God than Yahweh. He's saying, let's worship Yahweh, but let's worship him in a way that makes sense to us. It's something we can put our hands on, something that's understandable and accessible. He was violating not just the first commandment, but the second commandment. Israel did not keep this commandment, and it brought painful consequences upon their nation. We see this same error later. After King David, after King Solomon, comes Rehoboam. Rehoboam was an unwise and brash young king. And because of his unwise leadership, Israel split into two kingdoms. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The southern two tribes had Jerusalem. They had the temple. They had the authorized way of worship. 
And so the king of the northern ten tribes, in order to sort of maintain control over those ten, a king named Jeroboam, he built two golden calves. He put one in Beersheba and one in Dan. And he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. A failure to keep this commandment. Those gods that Jeroboam built became a perpetual stumbling block for the nation of Israel. It brought judgment upon them. They suffered at the hands of their neighbors and enemies all the way to the point of being deported and carried out of their land, judged. God kept his promise. He says, if you bow down and serve them, he says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God is faithful to judge. He always keeps his promises, whether for blessing and salvation or whether for judgment. But I want to look more closely at this phrase. What does it mean to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children specifically? Does this mean that, that there's sort of generational curses and that people who haven't committed sins personally are going to be punished by God because of what their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did? I'm convinced that that's not what this verse is teaching, and I'd like to share with you why. First of all, we always want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So at first blush, as we read this, we wonder, is that what it's saying? Does this mean that innocent bystanders are going to be punished for someone else's sin? No, and there's other passages that make this clear. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, God says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. There's a principle here of personal responsibility. God judges those who are worthy of judgment, who are guilty of sin. He doesn't punish innocent people. The same thing is laid out at length in Ezekiel chapter 18. I'll just read a portion of it. You can go look at this later because it's an extended argument. But God says through Ezekiel, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So whatever this verse is saying, it's not saying that innocent children or grandchildren will be punished because of what someone else did. So what does it mean then? If it doesn't mean that, what is God saying? Well, note carefully what the text says. I'm going to read it again. Look at it again with me. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. This is a promise of judgment not on innocent children. It's a promise of judgment on those who hate God. The hate and love, again here, that are referred to in this text are not just about feelings. It's a description of loyalty. God is saying, if the children and grandchildren are also disloyal to me, I'm going to keep punishing this sin as long as it exists. The children will experience the same judgment as the fathers, not as innocent bystanders, but because they participate in the same sins as the fathers. This statement should cause us to consider Consider the faithfulness of God, that he always judges sin. Get this, regardless of where you learned it. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, I struggle with anger, but I come from an angry family. My dad was angry. My grandpa was angry. That excuse doesn't fly with God. God judges sin regardless of where you learned it. You know, Adam and Eve, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, they tried shifting the blame. They tried blaming somebody else because of their sin. It didn't work then. It didn't work in the day of Moses, and it won't work today. God holds people individually, personally responsible for their sin, regardless of where you learned it. Also, we should consider here the necessity of loyalty to God. Get this, even above loyalty to parents. That's a hard thing to hear. Because we know family is good. It's a blessing. We love our family. We want a unified family. But what happens when family goes this direction and God calls you this direction? Will your loyalty be to the family? Or will your loyalty be to God? Think about growing up in 
perhaps in Old Testament Israel. And, you know, there's the, the national God, Yahweh, which everybody worships. Israel never stopped worshiping God, but they also started adopting family gods and personal gods. For you to grow up and say, Dad, I'm not going to worship your God, you know, the family God that our family has chosen for ourselves, that would have been offensive. That, that would have provoked your family. That would have been an explicit condemnation of them as being wicked and sinful and idolatrous. There's a lot of pressure for the children to worship idols because the parents worship the idols and the grandparents worship the idols. But listen, God calls for loyalty, exclusive worship, and the loyalty we have to God should even trump the loyalty we have to family. Jesus makes the same point. He says, if you don't hate father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Again, that hate there is referring to ultimate loyalty. Our ultimate loyalty belongs to God, even before family. So we see in this warning of judgment the faithfulness of God. He judges sin regardless of where you learned it. We see the necessity of loyalty to God, even above loyalty to any earthly person, those closest to us. But we should also consider here the generational impact of sin. Put yourself in the shoes of the parents. Your children are learning from you. And wicked ways will be taught and passed on to those who come after. It, it takes a long time to turn a generation. And they needed to consider that God's judgment is going to come. And if you guys embrace idolatry, it's likely that your children will as well. And the judgment of God is not only going to fall upon you, it's also going to fall upon those who learned their sinful ways from you. It's a sober warning. Our sin always affects other people. We like to think that it doesn't. We like to think my sin only affects me. But that's not the case. It's not the case. We also should consider the consequences of idolatry. Notice he, he talks here about multiple generations who refuse to repent. But this doesn't go on forever. When God says to the third and fourth generation, he's not saying if there's a fifth generation, I'll let them slide. No, that's not what God means. I think what he's implying is that if this goes on for a couple generations, those generations themselves will just have to come to an end because I won't let this go on forever. Rebellion against God with a refusal to repent, it leads to destruction. Contrast this to those who love God, who continue on generation after generation after generation. We see the third and fourth generation receives judgment but God's love, his steadfast love, extends to thousands. And the implication here is thousands of generations. It keeps going. There's no end to it. That's not because God's justice is somehow limited, that he only carries it out to the third and fourth generation. It's because the need for justice will come to an end, because that justice will be fully discharged, and God will eliminate rebellion. We see this happen with Israel. They went into captivity, and God cured them of worshiping False gods, at least in the form of bowing down to carved images. When they came back into the land after those 70 years, they didn't do this anymore. God ended it. You know, in the New Testament, Peter says that we shouldn't look around at the world and consider God's slowness to bring final judgment as somehow indicating that he's forgotten or that he doesn't care. No, God is patient He's giving time right now for people to repent, but there is a day coming where God's just going to end rebellion. It's going to come. We look at God's jealousy and we see that he will not tolerate any rival. He will not share the heart of his people with another God. And he is faithful to judge. He's faithful to judge. But he's also faithful to bless. He's faithful to bless. Look at what comes next. Yes, God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But look at verse six, this beautiful contrast. But, don't you love those little three-letter three words, but, in, in scripture? But, God also shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. 
False worship is not only warned against, but pure worship here is being encouraged. God's jealousy is symptomatic of his deep love for us. And that love not only keeps us from false worship, but also invites us to come and experience his grace. The same zeal for his own that moves him to judge also moves God to pour out his grace on those who love him. The phrase steadfast love here is a translation of one word in the Hebrew text. It's the word hesed. It's that word that describes God's covenant faithfulness. It has this idea of loyalty and unwavering commitment. God never breaks up with those he loves. God never divorces his people. His love is eternal. It is perfect. It is steadfast, unwavering. And this steadfast love of God, his covenant faithfulness, it is the basis for God's mercy towards his chosen people. God has steadfast love for his own and therefore expects us to love him faithfully in return. God's not asking us to be any more committed than he is. His steadfast love never ends. And he calls us to love him faithfully and exclusively as well. We see in verse 6 that those who love him are those who keep his commandments. He says, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those aren't two different things. There's not loving God and keeping his commandments as two separate actions. No, they're joined together. Again, Jesus makes the same statement in the New Testament. If you love me, then you will what? You'll keep my commandments. That is the expression of our love for God. It's John 14, verse 15. So there's a glorious promise here given to those who love him. Those who do not love him perfectly, because none of us has ever done that. But those who do love him truly. It is possible to love God. It is possible to believe in him. By God's grace, we are able to persevere to the end in worshiping God alone and worshiping him rightly. And God calls us to this. Those who are loyal to him, those who do love him in this way, will never plumb the depths of his love. We will never reach the end of his mercy. We can never exhaust his grace. Although judgment may last to the third and fourth generations, his steadfast love is greater. His grace is greater than our sin. God is a jealous God. And right worship involves a recognition of this aspect of, it, of his character. What it means is that our worship is going to be marked by both fear and by faith. We fear him. We take seriously the warnings. We take seriously his word and his laws and the consequences of sin. But we also approach him in faith, believing in the promise of his steadfast love, that he is merciful, he is gracious, he's slow to anger, he forgives our sin. And if we come to him in the right way, as we'll see in a moment, in the name of his son, Jesus, then his steadfast love will never depart from us. God must be worshipped rightly. He must be worshipped rightly or he is not worshipped at all. And this involves rejecting false methods of worship and it involves recognizing God's character that he's a jealous God who judges idolatry, but who delights to pour out his love on those who love him. Now, we today, in the century we live in, we don't face, probably, the same temptations that they did, at least in the same way. We don't face the temptations to make carved images and bow down to them. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church has some issues with iconography, but that's not the problem here at Redemption Hill. If you walk through our building, which we're kind of in the process of finishing, you know, renovating, you're not going to find any statues of Jesus. You're not going to find any paintings of him. We have a cross here, but Jesus isn't on that cross. It's empty. Uh, and we definitely don't bow down to it and worship it. So we're not going to, to maybe deal with the same exact temptation of making graven images. So what are we to learn from this? How is this practical for us today? Maybe you understand this text now better historically, which is good, but what does it mean for us? Why did God preserve this so that we would hear it and learn from it? Well, I want to suggest to you today just a couple ways we can apply this. And the first is this. Our worship must be regulated by the word. 
Our worship must be regulated by the word. Again, here's the principle from this text. God cares not just that we worship him. He cares how we worship him. And he's not left us in the dark to figure out how it is that he wants to be worshiped. He reveals it to us in his word. We therefore must worship him in the way that he desires. And here's what that means. Everything we do in effort to worship God must find its basis in Scripture. We have to embrace the means and the methods that God has ordained and commanded. Again, Israel's danger was being, the the, the danger to their worship was that it would be corrupted by outside influences. There were things going on in the world around them and even tendencies they had in their own flesh that was constantly going to push them towards idolatry. And they took their cues very much from culture. Christian worship today faces the same dangers. That what's going on out there around us, the values, the methods, the things of the culture and the world are always going to try to worm their way into the church. Our worship must be regulated by the word, meaning that we take our marching orders, not from the wisdom of the world, not even from the traditions of men, but from the mouth of God. He gave us his word, and this is what forms our worship. This means that we cannot lay aside what God commands in favor of what people may want. That's a critical error that many churches make today. What do the people want? Let's provide that. The church is to be a little bit like a wise parent. Sometimes the kids don't want to eat their broccoli, but it's good for you. So we're going to do it anyway. Sometimes people come and say, man, a 45, sometimes 55-minute sermon that's expository in nature, that's not really what I'm interested in. Well, we think you should be interested in that. We think that's what's good for you. Not because my style of preaching is anything, but because we want the scripture to speak. We want this to be the focus. So regardless of whether that's what people want, regardless of what the church growth gurus may say or what some church marketing firm has discovered through their research, that's not where we look to, to discover how we should worship here in the church. We look to God's word. Worship is not for us. It's for God. But too often, worship in the church today becomes about man. What is convenient for man? I'm trying to decide whether or not to go into a bunch of really specific examples. I don't know how helpful that would be. But I'll just use one. Um, This is why we as a church are never going to have two services, one that's traditional and one that's contemporary. That's catering to certain preferences You end up with two different congregations, and you're allowing the desires of people to control what happens in the church. You know, I think worship at our church is often, I talk about this with Carrie, it's kind of an acquired taste because it's not purely traditional and it's not purely contemporary, and that's not always what people come in the door most excited about, and we're totally fine with that, really. We think it's good to maybe set aside our preferences and say, how is it that we can come together to best worship God in a way that involves everyone to the greatest degree, in a way that makes sense you know, in our current context? So that's a rabbit trail. I don't want to go too far down that. But we cannot lay aside what God commands in favor of what people want. We also do not lay aside what God provides for a creation of our own. Again, what has God given us? He's given us his word. He's given us a message. He's given us a book. God has not given us a movie. There's a lot of people today, researchers, who say that the next generation, the coming generation, is visual in nature. We've been discipled on social media and Instagram and pictures. And so we need to find ways to communicate God's word that aren't one person standing there talking for a long time. So we need to get a drama team, and we need to show movie clips, and we need to sort of pull all this together Listen, we cannot lay aside what God has provided for a creation of our own. Our worship must be regulated by the word of God. We dare not replace God's word with something else that lacks the power and the authority of God's word. So that's why we're not going to do movies or a drama team on our Sunday morning as part of worship. 
I'm not going to just try to tell entertaining stories. I'm not going to do stand-up comedy because we want God's voice to be heard. This is what we're here for. So it doesn't matter what anyone else out there is doing. It doesn't matter what the church growth people say or whatever. We want to worship according to God's word. And there's, there's flexibility there, to be sure. Um, other churches' music won't look like ours, and we're fine with that. It doesn't have to look exactly like this, but the key essence of what is going on here, that Christ is central, that there's prayer, there's the reading of scripture, there's corporate singing, and there is the expounding of the word. Those things are non-negotiable, and that's what we're going to do. That's what God, God's word tells us to do. So we must worship according to the word. But there's a second aspect of applying this. If, we're, if our worship is going to be regulated by God's word, there's another very personal application that may speak to you today. We cannot fashion an image of God intellectually, the kind of God that we want to worship, a doctrinal creation of our own hands. We need to receive what God says about himself. A.W. Tozer has a great little book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and the first chapter is worth the price of the book. And he talks about how the most important thing about someone is what comes into their mind when they think about God, your conception of God. And he points out that there's a very real danger that you and I might tend to imagine God as we want him to be. And when that happens, what we end up doing is worshiping this God of our own making, not the God who's revealed in Scripture. Maybe you've heard this said, my God would never do that. Have you heard that kind of a phrase before? Or, my God would definitely do this. That statement is so transparent because it's clear that person has created for themselves a God. They've sort of come to Scripture and come to the church and sampled the different parts about God that they like and sort of edited God. But God says, when you worship something else that's not me, even if you're sincerely thinking you're worshiping me, that's not me. And that kind of worship is not acceptable. For our worship to be regulated by the word means we dare not fashion for ourselves our own intellectual image of God that we worship. No, we need to receive what God says about himself. The God who thunders from Sinai has told us who he is. The God who spoke through the prophets has told us who he is and what he is like. The God who revealed himself through his son Jesus has showed us and told us who he is. The God who has inspired this word has shown us and told us who he is and what he is like. It is not up to us to fashion for ourselves the kind of God that we get excited about and want to worship. The wrong question to ask is, who is God to you? The right question is, who is God Full stop. So if our worship is going to be regulated by the word, that means we need to receive everything God says about himself and acknowledge all of it. We don't edit God. We don't, we don't emphasize certain attributes and minimize others. We let the scripture speak fully and loudly and plainly as God reveals himself to us there. So our worship needs to be regulated by the word. But a second point of application, our worship must be centered on Christ. Our worship is to be centered on Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus Christ is the image of God. So God's revelation, we talked about this at Mount Sinai. God spoke. He didn't show them any form. But God's revelation did not stop in Exodus. Yes, God was heard at Sinai, but God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that he, speaking of Jesus, is the image, literally the icon of the image, uh, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We are not to create an image of God and bow down to it in worship, but God has provided us with an image, Jesus, who doesn't just represent God. Jesus is God and therefore is to be at the center of our worship. Our worship is to be offered to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who is worthy. He is the image of God, one that is not made but begotten, 
one who is not just part of the creation. He's the one who is the creator. He spoke everything into being. John 1 says that apart from him was not anything made that was made. He is our God. And obedience to the second commandment is fulfilled by worshiping Jesus. We don't furnish for ourselves a representation of God. We receive what he has provided in sending us his own son. Our worship is to be to Christ. Our worship is also to be through Christ. He is our mediator. We come to him to access the Father. We pray in his name. And it's on the basis of his work at the cross that we can approach God. It's at the cross that the steadfast love of God This covenant faithfulness, this mercy has been extended to us. It is in Christ that our false worship is judged and nailed to the cross and that true worship is made possible. Jesus told the woman at the well that the Father is seeking worshipers. And he makes us worshipers by saving us through the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. It is in Christ that God's covenant promises are kept, and it's in Christ that God's covenant purposes are fulfilled to secure a people for himself who will serve him alone. And it's through the spirit of Christ that we are enabled to love God as we ought. Listen, if you feel the weight of conviction today, if you've not been loyal to God, if you've worshiped a God of your own imagination rather than the God of Scripture, if you've not trusted in Christ and come to him, then I invite you today to come to the cross for shelter. The wrath of God is coming. There is a day of judgment that has been appointed. And Jesus Christ is coming soon. The only way for you to be spared from the consequences of your sin as if those consequences are poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. If you feel distant from God today, you sense your guilt, it's not through trying harder or improving your worship methods that you're going to become acceptable to God. It's by coming to Jesus Christ, recognizing that he is God and that only he can cleanse you of your idolatry and only he can make you fit to be a worshiper of the true God. So come to him, believe in him, repent of your sin, and receive his promise of steadfast love. Our worship needs to be regulated by the word, and it needs to be centered on Jesus Christ, who is the image of the unseen God. If our worship fails to do that, if it's not regulated by God's word, if it's not centered on Jesus Christ, then no matter how sincere you may be, it is not right worship and it is not acceptable to God. God must be worshiped rightly or he is not worshiped at all. He is jealous for his glory and he has revealed to us not only whom we must worship, but also how we must worship. I think there's probably room for growth in all of us in terms of rightly worshiping God, approaching him in the way that he has designed And my prayer today is that your heart would be eager to worship this God in a way that pleases him. Not in a way that we manufacture, but in a way that submits to what he has revealed about himself and what pleases him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we recognize that our ability to please you and worship you rightly, our ability is limited and our failures are many. We often run after other gods, other things that we value more than you, which is a violation of the first commandment. But even our efforts to worship you are often fraught with failure. There are times when our worship is not controlled by your word, but by other things. And there's times where we set Jesus to the side rather than recognizing him as the central focal point of our worship. Lord, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus today. That we would see him as the full revelation of your glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Fix our eyes on Jesus, and I pray, God, that that Jesus would be preeminent here. That he would be preeminent in our hearts and in our homes and in this congregation that we would not settle for or tolerate 
on biblical worship. Pray that you would give us a zeal and a passion for your glory, one that matches your own. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated and comforted by your steadfast love. You pour out your mercy. You do not forsake your children. Thousands of generations can testify to your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our love for you, that you would strengthen our loyalty to you above and beyond our loyalty to all secondary things. Lord, it's our great desire that you would be pleased, that you would take delight in our worship. As imperfect as it is, we know that Jesus Christ sanctifies our worship. It's his blood that makes us acceptable. It's his intercessory work that makes our prayers acceptable. It's his finished work on the cross that makes our songs a pleasing sound to your ears. Lord, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. It's our only hope. We're so grateful for the love we receive through him. Lord, stir us to love you more and to live our lives for your glory alone. Amen.